for today is found in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was like this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Also, well done, Johan, on your choice of shirt today. Tank top. I feel like year three or four, I'll be able to somehow pull off preaching in a tank top. And I will know then that I have arrived at the promised land. Hey everybody, I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here. And, uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna teach together about this passage, uh, from Acts chapter 8. I have been, so I've been sitting with this passage for weeks and weeks, and I mean, honestly, years, because this book is quite familiar, uh, to me and to a lot of you as well. But what I get to share this morning with you, uh, is born out of a ton of prayer and discernment and conversations and study, and other scriptures talking uh, to this text itself. So I'm really excited, but I feel a a good bit of anticipation in this teaching. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it. If you don't, there's Bibles in front of you in the pews. I'll also say, if you have a fan, would you please hold it up in the air so we can see how many are already waving? Uh, There are these fans kind of spread all across the sanctuary. If you find yourself like, oh my goodness, it's so hot in here, you can grab a fan and fan yourself. If your neighbor has a fan and they're not sweating as much as you, then you may request their fan or that they just fan in like a wide berth so they get two at one, okay? Um, That's where we are today. Let's pray together and then we'll continue. God guide us in all listening and understanding. Guide me in speech and in clarity. We are pursuing your way of love. And it is surprising, but we hope it's true. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's get going. Uh, We're going to jump through the passage. We're going to move through because what I want to show you 
as we get started, is what this story means just in its setting, the strangeness of what's happening. This is, if just as a point of reminder, the story of Acts is the story of the birth of the church. And so Jesus has been with his disciples. He has gone through suffering, death, resurrection, and then he has gone back to the Father, which is the Bible's way of saying that Jesus is in the place of authority and power, now sort of moving in the world in a new way. And the disciples, these early followers, are left here in this old world trying to speak about the new thing that God is doing in Christ. They're given the spirit at Pentecost, and then they are off on their way to tell everybody about this good news. And they use that word good news or gospel or euangelion. Whatever has happened in the story of Jesus, it has changed everything. One of the lines that shows up in the book of Acts that I think is emblematic of the book itself is that these disciples who are following Jesus are turning the world upside down. And that's what we see, especially in this story. So there's been... Uh, all of this movement of the spirit, but also anytime the spirit moves, and we'll see if this is true today, uh, there is also a bit of friction. Sometimes that friction erupts in antagonism or outright violence and death, and we've seen that story too. So the disciples now are spread out, and all of these new followers are spread out. And one of the places they're spread out to is the region known as Samaria, which is the place where all of Israel's enemies live. And this story takes place right after that story. So chapter 8 of the book of Acts is where we are. I have so many bookmarks in my Bible today. That's either good news or bad news, depending on what kind of sermon you were hoping for. It's in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. First thing you need to know is where they are. It says that the Spirit tells Philip to get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then there's this little footnote in the text that says, by the way, this is a wilderness road. Now, you don't need to know where Gaza is or where exactly this road is because the author just told you why it matters. It's a a wilderness road. And we know what wilderness means because we were in the book of Numbers for like three and a half years before we started preaching on the book of Acts. And Numbers is all about what it means to live in the wilderness. The wilderness road is a place in between. It's a place in between realities, between worlds. There is something that is happening in this Jesus story. And in this exact moment in chapter 8, Philip is driven, directed, and listens to the Spirit to go to the place of meeting of those worlds. And in this place of meeting known as a wilderness world, he's going to encounter someone who stands in between realities. Everything that happens on this wilderness road, for me, in my reading of Acts, is like sort of compressed in meaning to this one story. And while he's on the road, he sees this, this sort of movement of, of person, this caravan. And it says some specific details about this person from Ethiopia. Specifically, it says that he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. What does that line sound like to you? Somebody give me a sense of what this line sounds like. If I told you that, like, somebody was standing in their Yeezys eating Fleming steak, like, would that phrase mean anything to you? Or if they were, like, boarding their airliner, jet, private, drinking, like, super expensive single malt scotch, would that mean anything to you? This means that this dude is super rich. Like, really, really rich. You don't have a chariot unless you have a lot of money or access to a lot of money. And you surely don't have a scroll 
Now, we have our Bibles like this. This is like a codex or a book, right? But that's not the way that they would have had their text. They would have had scrolls. And scrolls are really expensive. In fact, if you were to go to synagogue in your local town or village, that synagogue would likely only have a few scrolls with them. And then you'd pass them around. Like First Baptist Church, Altadena, they have the scrolls for the New Testament today, and we have the Old Testament scrolls. And next week, we're going to switch with them. That would be how it worked, because these scrolls are really expensive. And Isaiah is a really long book. It's not like the book of Jonah. So that scroll is crazy expensive and really, really long. That is who is in this chariot. This person with some kind of power and prestige in the world as the world configures these things. That's the first part of who he is. But there's another part. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. We don't learn his name. Part of the reason I think we don't learn his name is because this person stands in for, and we'll get to that, becomes this kind of universalizing figure. To be an Ethiopian eunuch is to be two things at once, both which are terrible if you're meeting the people of Israel. To be Ethiopian means you are just simply not from here. And to be a eunuch means you're not like us. Ethiopian at the time didn't mean the area we know of as Ethiopia. It simply meant someone who was of dark skin, but also to be Ethiopian meant you were from a specific place. The specific place is here, the end of the earth. That's the way you understood Ethiopia. You've got Jerusalem, which is like the power center of religion. It's where the temple is. It's where Jesus goes at the very end of his story before he dies. Then you've got Judea, which is part of Israel, but just a little bit removed from Jerusalem. Then you've got Samaria, which is like the land of your enemies, but still kind of close by. You know the zip code. And then you have the ends of the earth. Do you remember where we heard this phrase? Go and preach the gospel starting in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. We are now at the ends of the earth, friends. It's here. It's at the wilderness road. This Ethiopian is from that place. It's about as unknown as it could be. He's about as mysterious as you would imagine. But he's not just Ethiopian. He's also a eunuch. Now, eunuch's one of these words I don't use a lot. I don't have occasion to use the word eunuch very often. Do you? No, we don't like, that's not a thing we call people anymore. Uh, Eunuch has this kind of broad definition. But what it means at its root is that this is someone with an ambiguous sexuality and gender not exactly understood in the cultural understanding of masculine and not exactly expressive in what you would call like a normative sexual experience. That's the eunuch. He exists kind of in the wilderness state himself. And in fact, the Bible talks about eunuchs. Now, if this guy owns a scroll of Isaiah there's a really good chance this guy knows his Torah, knows his Old Testament. But I want to show you a couple of passages from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that talk about eunuchs. And I'm going to show them to you in the good old King James because the reading is hilarious. Ready? I'll read it to you. Uh, This is from Leviticus 21. The red part is the part referencing eunuchs. Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be... That thy seed and their generations that hath any blemish. By the way, is Rini here? 
How would you have read this like Shakespeare kind of reading? That's what I feel like whenever I read this. I think about you and, and champ in your class. I'll, I'll keep going. For whosoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. So this is a story about who can enter into certain parts of the temple, the religious system, and offer sacrifices. These people can't approach. A blind man can't approach, or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose. I didn't know that was a thing, but it's a thing. Or anything superfluous. That's basically all of us. Because we've all got something superfluous going on physically, right? Or anything superfluous, or a man that's broken-footed, or broken-handed, or crook-backed, or a dwarf, or that hath a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or scab. We're definitely talking about pirates at this point, right? Like, that's, that's who's not allowed to bring an offering. Uh, scurvy or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. Let's just hear, what do you think stones means? No. But you know, right, the other text, if you're reading like the NIV, it would say that has his genitals crushed. He's talking about a eunuch here. No man that hath the blemish of the seed of Aaron, the priest, shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish, he shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. The, the phrase come nigh is the phrase come near. These are the people who are not allowed to get too close to sacred things or sacred places or sacred realities. And what does it do to you when you're the kind of person who your very identity keeps you far away from the divine, from God? And then if you start to talk about that God as love, but then you find out that you can't even get close to love. might make you start to feel unlovable. There are all kinds of tensions and contradictions and complexities in the text. Let's look at Deuteronomy 23. Same thing. He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off. That's a great line. He that hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, he shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. This is Deuteronomy 23, strengthening what you've just heard in Leviticus 21. I promise you, the eunuch knows these passages, knows what they mean for his life. It says that he was in Jerusalem worshiping, which means that he was an admirer of the faith, but not a participant in it. And not necessarily by choice, but by, by rule. There was only so close he could get to this God. And so with all of his energy and with all of his wealth, this person is pursuing the living God. But there is something about his understanding and the expression of the tradition that keeps him at a distance. That's what's happening in the background here. This is what it would have felt like each time he approached the holy place. You didn't have to say it. It was just understood. There are certain kind of people who aren't allowed in church. And I wish this was an old story, but it's not an old story. It's also our story. Not only that, but he's in his chariot and it says that he's reading alone. You don't read alone. This statement is suffused with sadness. You always read with another. Usually several others. We read alone all of the time. But that's a new phenomenon. Back then you always read in the community, but this person has no community. At least when it comes to God's people. 
This aloneness, it goes back to the first bad thing that the scriptures talk about. Genesis 2, 18. It is not good for humanity to be alone. We should make them in community. That's the language of creation. That loneliness is itself the first sadness. And this Ethiopian eunuch is in the deep place of loneliness. So, the Spirit says to Philip, you got to go. So Philip goes, and he runs. And the, the, the scene itself is somewhat comical, right? Because Philip sees this caravan, and he starts to sort of jog beside it. I don't know how fast chariots go, but I imagine it's probably a little faster than walking, or maybe you would have walked. And so it's Philip, like, jogging beside the chariot, yelling up and talking to the Ethiopian eunuch and hearing him reading the scroll of Isaiah, he's probably sweating like 10 times as much as I'm sweating right now just from fake jogging in place. At the same time, he's got to listen to what's being read in Isaiah and figure out how in the world he's going to engage this strange person from the strange land. I'm already out of words and ideas. I can't imagine what it felt like to be Philip at the time. But the spirit told him to go, so he goes. And there are these four questions that punctuate this story. Philip ran and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And so the one replied, How can I understand unless someone guides me? Can you feel this craving to understand this God? How can I unless someone guides me? So Philip is invited to get in and sits beside him. Hopefully given some water. Hopefully given a handkerchief. It's my cue. From all that jogging I just did. The passage of scripture he was reading was this. This should sound familiar to us. Like Like a sheep was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before it shears... He does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. We know this story out of Isaiah 53 from the suffering servant passage. When we read it, we often read it around the time of Advent. And it's a story that we hear echoes of Jesus the Messiah. And so he's reading this passage that is full of tension and complexity and confusion. What is this with suffering? Why suffering to move to joy? What is it that God is doing in this story? It's confusing, especially if you have to read it by yourself. So he has a teacher now. And Philip begins to speak, starting with this scripture. Right? So you've got the scroll open. Starting with this scripture. Begins to tell him the big story. Starts to connect the dots. It says he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. This gospel. I don't know what he said. Neither do you. But somehow holds all of this big story together. And in fact, very likely weaves the Ethiopian eunuch into this story. And then the fourth question. 
look, here is water. What is preventing me from being baptized? It just appears. This water, the water appears when you need it. And something in Philip's teaching is pushing the eunuch into courage to ask the question that is beyond imagination. What's preventing me from being baptized? Uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those probably. The big tradition, the sign we put out front of the temple, did you not see? Of course, there's so many things that are keeping him from moving closer. A certain reading of the tradition. But Philip is teaching. Do you know what comes after Isaiah 53? And someone said Isaiah 54. And 55. And 56. Listen. If you're an Ethiopian eunuch in love with God. You know every instance where the scriptures that talk about that God talk about you. Us here, those of us who love God and are seeking after God's understanding of us, we know the scriptures that talk about the parts of us we're scared of, the parts we're scared to bring forward. We've got them memorized. The eunuch, too. After Isaiah 53 is Isaiah 56. And here's what Isaiah 56 says. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what's right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree for this is what the Lord says. There is something happening in this passage from the prophet Isaiah. Some opening being made in the tradition itself. Prophet Isaiah seems to have a dynamic understanding of relationality with the divine such that something new can happen. That old walls, old signs, old rules, that they can grow up, that they can expand. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To keep Sabbath is to keep God's time, to lean into the covenant is to hope for and yearn for a relationship with God and God's people. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name in the temple, not outside the temple, not the hint of it one day, but in the temple. And in its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. You can bet that if the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, he'd also read Isaiah 56. And the part in there he's asking about is in part calling forth, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? And for those who look like me, who feel like me, who operate with this body in the world. 
What is keeping me from being baptized is his question. So he commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down to the water and Philip baptized him. I don't know what they talked about at that point. Maybe Philip's answer to what is keeping me is, I don't think anything's keeping you. Are you ready? Can you say that Jesus is Lord? Can you lean into the directional pitch that your life has been headed toward? You want to get baptized? Let's go. The water is here. It's like no fuss. Just He's baptized. Now, I will say that if at some point Philip was like, hold on, let me go ask the committee. Let me go get a vote from the temple and we'll figure out if you can be baptized. It would have been a different story. But there is the yearning and there is the spirit and there is the response. It is organic and it is fluid and it is, it's a little bit wild. But that's the story. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Where there wasn't a way, somehow spirit makes a way. And I don't know how and I don't think you know how. Because Leviticus and Deuteronomy seem pretty shut. But the story of the gospel is the story of impossible things happening. Namely, that that last door that we call death that is shut is somehow not the last thing. Already our story has at its center, at its core, a breaking, expansive understanding of the world and of God's power, of what God can do when things stand in the way. And so where there wasn't a way, the Spirit makes a way. And the end of this story is joy. Let's go to the next one. It says he goes on his way rejoicing. So I've, uh, I've been a pastor for a while, been a pastor here now for a few years. I have been in ministry for a little bit longer than I've been a lead pastor. And I've been trying to understand and follow the way of Christ for even longer than that. I've known this story and I've known the complexities that it presents us with. And often, when I read it, I have a sense of what it's telling me. Because it's right there in the text. What it's asking of me. And it is my job, as one of your interpreters of the tradition and of scripture, to share with you what I think the text is showing us. And so I want to tell you what I'm seeing. What it means for us here. Because when I ask you the question, like, how many of you brought all of your eunuch friends to church today? Not a lot of hands went up. As though it's an open and a closed conversation. It's a thing that happened. And so we figured out the Ethiopian eunuch thing. We can check that one off the list. We don't have to worry about excluding those folks anymore. But. But. There are all kinds of people. Bearing all kinds of bodies. And all kinds of stories. Who do not feel like they can walk into this room. Physically, emotionally, traumatically, cannot enter in. Now, I know you all. I love you all. And know that you love one another and love this world. So maybe it's not the story they heard from us, but it's the story they heard from some place that looked like us, that had the same symbols as us, 
And the question that folks will not ask is, what is preventing me from being part of you? Because they're so scared of the answer. This story is asking us to watch and pay attention to God's people embracing across lines that were unimaginable to cross. It's really, it's really simple. It's just right there. The tradition, the scriptures, from Genesis all the way out into Revelation, are in conversation with themselves and with the world. Leviticus and Deuteronomy hold hands with and dance with Isaiah. And all of that is in the heart and mind of Christ when Christ steps on the scene and explains to us what all of this might mean. Right now, right now, in denominations across this country and across the world, the question of who is in or out of fellowship is live. It is kinetic. Usually, in our decades, it centers around the questions of gender and sexuality. Whether you're gay or you're straight, whether you present in a binary understanding or whether there's some fluidity to your own identity. It's complicated. It's complex. But there are folks who are not what churches have told them is a conforming standard of sexuality and gender who will not show up here. They don't feel like they can show up in a place like this. They've done studies that show the way that churches talk about sexuality and gender is causing deep physical suffering. And one of the causes for the high suicide rate among gay and trans teens is because of the language that they've been handed in religious spaces. Number and verse from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Number and verse from whatever passages you can find. These are the reasons that you can't be part of this. These are the reasons you can't be baptized. Do you love God? I don't think that's quite enough. That's what they hear. Right now, the United Methodist Church, united being the operative word there, is trying to figure out if they're going to hold together around the question of sexuality and gender. And I don't know if they're gonna. This United Methodist Church has made it through conversations of race, of slavery, of whether women can serve in ministry. They've handled other complex questions, but this one might do them in. In this region, for American Baptists, in the last decade, there was a split and a fissure over questions of who can belong exactly around sexuality and gender. I'm trying to read this story well. I'm trying to offer you the best of my understanding of what the Spirit is leading us toward. 
Here's what I want to be. Both John Jay here, right? This is John Jay speaking, not necessarily the spirit. Paul says that all the time, so I feel like I'm in company. This is Paul speaking, not the spirit. If you, whoever the you may be, wants to love God more deeply, if you, whoever you may be, can say the phrase, Jesus is Lord, and will make that intelligible across your life, then I want to know you. I want you here. There is nothing that is keeping you away. Now, I don't know in this room if there are folks who feel scared to bring the fullest version of themselves to the front. If there's a part of who you are that you keep hidden because you're not sure you can say, this is actually who I am for fear that you will no longer belong. Then I'm saying here, as John Jay speaking, we want you here. We need you here. The picture, the sight, the imagination of who God is and what God is doing in the world is in fact limited in your absence. We want people who are gay and straight in our congregation. We do. We want to be mutually formed in the image of God together. I submit my life to each of you, each week and each day, that you might help me become more like Christ. Submit, trust. If somebody wants to do that with this congregation, I want those folks here. And I believe, and now let me say this is also what I see and feel the Spirit saying, is the Spirit wants us there too. To embrace. Now here's the thing. There is a difference of opinion in this room over a lot of things I just said. And some of that can get hot, can get kinetic really quick. Guess what? We don't all think the same things here. And that's okay. So if your own convictions and understandings come in conflict with some of what I've just shared about who might be welcome at our table, then that's okay. We want you here too. Because the image of God that you have carried into this space will also shape us. There's this section in the book of Romans. It's, it's toward the end of the letter. Romans is the first of what we would call the epistles or the letters to the early church. And in chapter 14, it's this whole section on judgment. It says, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Other translations will say, we want to welcome all, whether strong or weak in the faith, but not so that we can get into it over disputable matters. For a long time in the religious landscape, the question of sex and gender have been the only things that certain people are allowed to talk about. Now, this is a new phenomenon. I've read the New Testament. This is not a thing that the early church was freaking out about. Because they were living in an entire differently world than us, right? With different concerns, different pressures, both from the front, the back, above and behind. Like everything was just a different place. 
So the big concern at the time were things like fidelity or pagan idolatry and worship in weird sort of ways or what kind of food you could eat or when you would celebrate the Sabbath or when you would rest. These are all live questions and we aren't struggling, right? I haven't had one email come up that says, hey, John Jay, would you like to weigh in on whether Saturday or Sunday is the Sabbath? Or by the way, can I eat meat that was butchered by somebody who might not have been a Christian? Like these are not our concerns, but they were deep concerns at the time. And Paul says here in this letter to the Roman church, please, we want to welcome all of those who are on the Jesus path, but not so that we can argue over disputable matters. I want to place this conversation around sexuality and gender into that disputable matters space where we can hold some tension together, where we can hold some fluidity, where we can disagree in love, but we can make space in love. To say the only way we're going to understand the complexities of this life, born in body, lived in physical presence, is if everyone is here at the table speaking in love with one another. So Paul is desperate to hold the early church together long enough so that they might discover the goods only made possible by people who've made promises to one another to stay put. Promises that the thing that matters is that Christ is raised. And that the new world is here. When we baptize people here, right behind me, we ask one confession of faith, that Jesus is Lord. And each of you who I've spoken with in this space can feel the yearning to make that more true, that Jesus is Lord of your life. And in each of you, the expression of that conviction is varied. Because for some of you, it is a way to try to make your relationships work. The ones that you have nurtured your whole life, your marriages, your parenting to child. How can you honor the living God with that? For some of you, it's what does it mean to separate from covenantal relationships, to move away from commitments or marriages, right? Like how do you honor, how do you move through, how do you make Jesus Lord in all things for each of us and then for all of us? On Thursdays, we meet in the chapel to talk about the passage of scripture for the coming Sunday. And you're all invited. If you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know we were going to talk about this today. Then you should come on Thursdays and you can help me figure out what we're going to talk about. The folks who were there on Thursdays, though, this is the whiteboard that we came up with together as we sort of noted out everything that we were seeing in the passage. It's a beautiful conversation, full of tons of generative, gracious energy. But there's one section right in the middle that I want to pull out for you. I asked the question to the group, what do you think the Ethiopian eunuch felt when he asked the question, what is keeping me from being baptized? Sharpen it, refine it. Continue to break it down. What is the question at the heart of the question? Because if I've learned anything from being in ministry for this long or anything being with people for this long, is that the questions that we ask at first is not the real question, right? It's not the real thing that's underneath the thing. And so the question, what is keeping me from being baptized? Right, it hints at the deeper yearning in this one's heart for what might be true. What you're telling me That Isaiah 53 is about this person named Jesus, the Messiah, and that he died and he rose again and that the new world has burst out upon us. If that's true, then is Isaiah 56 true? Hold the phone. Am I in? Can I be part of this? 
So these are the questions that this brilliant group of people came up with on Thursday. Can I be accepted? Can you hear that in this question? Am I worthy? What about me has to change? Because physically I can't fix what is, seems to be holding me back. Let's put fixing quotes there. Could I belong to this community? Is there any room for me? And now I feel like we are at the core of the fear. Churches that have split over who is allowed in and who is pushed out. They are full of people that are trying their very best to understand what God is calling them to. But we all carry stuff inside of us. And one of the things that we are all carrying all the time is a deep fear that we aren't enough. That we don't belong. Especially if each of us knew everything about us. That there isn't room. I mean, there's only room for like 600 people down here. What happens if we get to 650? Who do we choose to push out? Who gets to come into the center? What part of us do we keep hidden? There are some folks and parts of myself as well that still believe that God's love is limited, that God's grace is short. And if the name of the game in religion is to build a boat to escape the world, there's only so many seats on the boat. So you're going to have to throw somebody off. And then the name of religion becomes, how do you name with better precision who belongs and who doesn't? It is a small view of God, and it is not the one that First Baptist Pasadena believes in. I know you. You believe in a God who is large enough to hold this congregation together in all kinds of diversities and pluralities. And you believe that the complex parts of you can be held together in this space. That God's people will see you and love you into wholeness. By the way, when the Ethiopian eunuch leaves, he leaves in joy, but he leaves an Ethiopian eunuch still. He's not turned into a Jew. He is still who he was, only more so. So yes, we want all of you. And if you have friends who haven't ventured into a church because the way that they are made, the way that they are in the world has been told to them as not enough and outside the bounds of God's love, then you tell them that there are churches, that there is a church that will love them, that will see them, embrace them, and lead them deeper into the heart of Christ. That together we will mutually form one another into the image of God. It is what we are doing week after week after week. I'm not telling you anything new. This is what you already have known. This is what you have hoped is true, that God's love is big enough for all of us. And Acts 8 tells me that it is. It's not just Acts 8, though. We could look other places. There's a section in Ephesians. Let me read it for you.
But now in Jesus Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting death, all of the hostility. So he came and proclaimed peace to y'all who were far off and peace to those of you who were near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers or aliens, but are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In Christ, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. The wall has been broken down. All we have to do is believe the story we are trying to tell. On the way in, this is the last thing I'll say before I pray. I was talking to a friend of mine from the congregation. And he was talking about reading from Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton is one of the great writers and thinkers of the faith, also a contemplative. And he showed me this phrase that he had been mulling over, that uh, to be born again means to be born into love. And I don't know. You'll have to ask Brian. To be born again is to be born into love. Friends, to, to join this family of faith, to this walk, this way of life, is not to be initiated into a new exclusive club, but in fact to be brought deep into the heart of love, which is the heart of God. And we will teach each other how to do that dance. We will teach each other how to love better. And you will teach me and I will teach you. And we will trust one another that we can stay put even in hard conversations and complex arrangements because God is here and Christ is at our center. And all of God's people said, amen. Would you pray with me? God, where will you take us next? And listen, God, if you're going to continue to turn the world upside down, even our lives, even this congregation, uh, then you, you will need to be with us. We really want to see the world as you see it. We want to know people as you know them. To see in one another the image that you have placed on us. And confess, I confess, for myself and with these friends, that there are all kinds of other blinders that we have absorbed that interpret this world according to other rules. But you have given us the rule of love and belonging, of covenant and mutuality. And there is a deep gift in the story that you are telling over us, but there is also and always fear of what we are losing which is often a sense of certainty that we know what's going on and how free your spirit is. And honestly, God, if we can show up ourselves, thank you for loving me, all of me. Thank you for loving 
my friends on the stage to sing with us. Thank you for loving those in the center pews. Thank you for loving the folks in the back, the folks who are new, who haven't belonged to a congregation in a long time. Thank you for loving the parts of us that are hidden, even from ourselves. Because we believe and trust that in your love, there is wholeness. In your love, there is a place where we might belong and that there might be people who we would call family. We might call those folks the church. So hear us sing now our praises back to you. In Christ's name, amen.